Community Church exists to shine as light in our homes, in our community, and in our world. To contact us or for more information, see our website at wildwoodchurch.org. If you would, please take out your Bibles and turn in them in the New Testament to the book of Titus and chapter number two in Titus. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one under a chair in front of you, and you could take that Bible and turn to page 168 in the back, and you would be at, at Titus 2. I don't need to tell you that today is the start of spring break, our annual, yeah, there you go, our annual break from school. And since we are taking a break from school, I thought it would be good for us to just ask a few school-like questions today, all right? So here you go. Here's question number one. How many years were you or have you been in school? So I want you to think about that for a moment. How many years were you or have you been so far in school? Or some of us, like my grandson Aiden, he's just getting started. Uh, He is right now in second grade, so that means he is completing his third year of school. When we talk about school, I know there's some of us who are actually planning to return to school. You were in school for a while, and you're thinking about, I need to go back. But how many years were you in school? Now, if I were going to answer that question, the answer for me would be 21 years. Now, while you're in school, here is what is very commonly our perspective. I can't wait until I get done with school. And if you've been out for a while, you might also have the common thought, I am so glad I am done with school. But here's a second question for you. Are we ever really out of school? The truth is, you know, if we are breathing, we are still enrolled in the school of life. And for followers of Jesus, the best learning we will ever have comes from grace school, where grace is our tutor and grace is our life coach. And you're never too young and you're never too old to learn from grace. And you're never too new in the faith or too seasoned in the faith to learn from grace. And so today, even though it's spring break, school is in session And we're involved in a series of messages we have entitled Designer's Fashion, Adorning the Doctrine of God in Every Respect. And the title we have given to today's message is Grace School. And Grace School is in session today. If you have your Bibles open to Titus chapter 2, I want to read from that chapter beginning with verse 11 and following. And I would invite you to follow along in your Bible as I read. It says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. 
These things speak and exhort and reprove with all authority and let no one disregard you. So as we go to grace school today, we have, of course, a lesson plan. And our lesson plan has three elements to it. We're going to look at grace and our response, or rather our rescue, grace and our rescue in verses 11 and 14. Then we're going to look at grace and personal choices in verse 12, and we could include the last phrase in verse 14. And then thirdly, we're going to look at grace and future glory in verse 13. So that's the lesson plan. But before we do that, before we go to grace school today, I want to simply plug back into the context and the flow of the book of Titus in chapter 2. If you've been with us previously, we spent some time looking at principles of godly manhood from chapter 2, and then we looked at principles of godly womanhood in chapter 2, and then we looked at godliness at the workplace. A lot of discussion about being godly and godliness. Well, here's the question. Why should we cultivate godliness in our life? What is to be the catalyst that would spur us on to do that? Why should we be motivated to make godly choices? And verse 11 of chapter 2 introduces us to the reason. You notice that little word, for? After he's talked about the importance of being godly men and godly women and having godliness on the workplace, the word for introduces us to the reason, to the impetus, to the motivation for living that way, and it begins with grace and our rescue. Notice verse 11 says, for the grace of God has appeared. What is the grace of God? Not very long ago. We did a series of messages on amazing grace, and we gave as the definition of the grace of God, God's generous, undeserved goodness. So we could say, for God's generous, undeserved goodness has appeared. And I want you to notice that that verb there is past tense. It's looking backward. And the word that is translated appeared is the same word that we get our word epiphany from. God's generous, undeserved goodness dawned in the darkness of this world like the rising of the blazing sun. What is interesting is we really weren't looking for it, and we certainly could never imagine the amazing nature of God's generous, undeserved goodness says our motivation is that the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, we could say to all people. In other words, this salvation is accessible to anyone. It doesn't make any difference what your background is. It doesn't make any difference if you're raw pagan, if you are Muslim in background, or Hindu in background, or Mormon in background, or anything in between. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. It was brought to Mary the prostitute. It was brought to Mary the virgin. It was brought to the tough outdoorsman Peter and to the highly educated and intellectual Paul. 
The grace of God has appeared, a backward look, bringing salvation to all people. How did it bring salvation? Well, verse 14 unpacks the details for us. Notice, speaking of Christ Jesus, it said, who gave himself for us. You know, those few words are so deep and so powerful. He gave himself. He gave his life. Jesus was not a victim. What he did was an act of love for you and for me. He gave himself for us. A simple little phrase, but there's so much there. Five letters in English, eight letters in Greek. He gave himself for us. Theologians have a term for this, and that term is substitutionary atonement. That he was our substitute. He gave himself on behalf of us in our place. And the New Testament is peppered with this truth all over the place. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 21, it says that he, God the Father, made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf. My sin, the sin that was on my soul, was placed on him. He gave himself for me. We see it again in the New Testament in 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 6. It says, Christ Jesus gave himself a ransom for all. He paid the price that we needed to have paid, which was his life, and he did it for all. He did it for us. Hebrews chapter 2 verse 9 says, So that by the grace of God, his generous undeserved goodness, he might taste death for everyone. He gave himself for us. There's that substitutionary atonement. And in 1 John 2, 2, it says, He himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. You see, my sin demanded hell, but on him the judgment fell. See, it's not a matter of my achievements or your achievements or my goodness or your goodness. It's God's grace. Incredible, incredible truth. He gave himself for us. And then it goes on to say there in verse 14, to redeem us from every lawless deed. I like the way the New Living Translation puts it, to free us from every kind of sin. And the imagery he is using is one that in that day they would readily recognize. It's imagery of the slave market where someone was in bondage and what they needed someone to do is to come along and pay the price to free them. And that's what Jesus did when he gave himself for us to redeem us from every kind of sin. He released us from our captivity to sin and judgment. 
He gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession. Again, I like the New Living Translation, to cleanse us and make us his very own people. Now, if you have a Bible where there are side references in it, you might see listed there Exodus 19.5 because most theologians believe he is making an allusion here to Exodus 19.5 where God says to Israel as the people of God, an amazing statement, he says, you shall be my special treasure. And so when it talks about purifying for himself a people for his own possession, he's saying, I wanted to develop a group of people who would be my special treasure. And I think about that, and I just have to go, wow. I mean, wow. What an amazing thought. What amazing grace that he would do this for me all the while seeking to make me his special treasure. That's remarkably profound. That's totally awesome. That's, that's completely mind-blowing. It's very motivating. And if the Apostle Paul were sitting here on the front row, he would say, you better believe it. It's so true. He gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people who could be his special treasure. You know what is startling about all of that? That the majority of the world is going to choose to decline the grace of God in their life. It's startling. But grace school continues. We've seen grace in our rescue. It continues, secondly, with grace in our personal choices. Grace came as this epiphany. And you notice what it says there in verse 12. It says, instructing us. I just love the imagery here. What we have is the grace of God being personified, just like it was a person. And it's saying, it says here that the idea is that grace was, was there to train us. Grace is there to be our life coach. Grace is there to educate us and to motivate us. His grace teaches us how we should choose to live our life. Now, when you're in school, it's easy to let your mind drift um, Maybe get a little bit sleepy. So I'm just going to stop for a moment. We're in grace school, all right? Are you awake right now? Are, are, are you alert? Good, because it's very important that we tune in. we got some very important information coming our way here. Grace being personified as our coach, notice it says in verse 12, is instructing us, you and me who follow Jesus, to say no to ungodliness, to deny ungodliness, to say no to ungodliness, to decline to practice in our life ungodliness. You know, we are surrounded in a culture that increasingly says no to nothing except 
moral absolutes. Very quick in our culture to say no to moral absolutes, but increasingly we're in a culture that says no to nothing. And God says that grace teaches us as our instructor that we're to say no to ungodliness. What does ungodliness mean? Well, this word ungodliness is, is really just the word for godliness, and then they take what's called an alpha privative, that's that little a, and you put it and park it right at the front of the word. Ungodliness is just the very opposite of godliness. I like the way the New Living Translation translates it. It translates it godless living. We're to say no to godless living. What is godless living? Well, it's operating your life as if God doesn't really exist. Godless living is making choices in our life as if God didn't exist. And that's where the culture is, right? Ungodliness in our culture is expressed, for example, by humanism. I mean, humanism at its core is the idea that everything just revolves around us and around me. Humanism would say there is no divine revelation, that if there is a God, he's way out there and he really doesn't care. Humanism basically tells us that we should do whatever we feel is right. Whatever is right in our own eyes, that's what we should do. That's ungodliness. And we're to, as followers of Jesus, we're to say no to that. Ungodliness is also expressed in what we might call evolutionism. You know, evolutionism basically says there is no creator, and of course that would mean there is no judge, there is no one that we need to acknowledge, and there's no one that we need to be accountable to. And so we're surrounded by individuals who run their way through life embracing evolutionism. There's no creator. Obviously, there's no judge. There's no one I need to be acknowledging in my life. There's no one that I need to be accountable to. And what he's saying is grace teaches us that we're to say no to that. We need to acknowledge we have a creator. We have a judge. We have a God. We need to acknowledge him, and we need to remember we're accountable to him. He goes on to say that grace teaches us that we're to say no, secondly, to worldly desires. Now, I just want you to understand, that does not mean that we cannot enjoy life. Saying no to worldly desires doesn't mean we can't enjoy life. I mean, it's okay to enjoy life. It's okay to enjoy some delicious food. It's okay to have fun with your family and friends. It's okay, as some people have done, to go off to ski or to go off to the beach. That's okay. We don't have to say no to worldly desires in that sense. It doesn't mean that we can't laugh, that we can't enjoy a comedic movie or enjoy a great play. It doesn't mean that when it says we are to say no to worldly desires. Again, I think the New Living Translation helps us here. It says we're to, we're to basically deny or say no to sinful pleasures. You see, that's what it's addressing. We're to say no to the cravings that characterize this world. And I believe worldly desires are expressed in our culture through things, for example, like materialism. You know, materialism is just the energetic pursuit of wealth 
whatever the cost, whether it costs me in terms of breaking laws, cutting corners, or whether it costs me in terms of relationships, and it doesn't make any difference. You can be in a materialism whether you have very little or whether you have a lot. That makes no difference. It's just the energetic pursuit of wealth, whatever the cost. Worldly desires are also expressed in our culture through what we might call hedonism. Hedonism is simply the unbridled pursuit of pleasure. It's all about me feeling good about myself. And I can't tell you how many times over the years I've had someone show up in my office and they say to me, I want to do this. And I say to them, but the Bible says that you should not do that. And you know what their answer basically is? But I want to be happy. See, that's hedonistic. And the Bible is teaching us and grace is teaching us we need to say no to sinful pleasures and worldly desires. It's also expressed through sensualism. And this is becoming more and more prominent in our culture. Uh, It's really sex without boundaries. If it feels good, you go ahead and do it. So I'm just on a date with this person. I have my body telling me I want to do this. I think I'll just do it. Those are worldly desires, you see. We're to say no to those things. And and I think these worldly desires are also expressed in our culture in self-gratification. Again, that's the idea that it's just about my happiness rather than God's glory and honor. And even followers of Jesus make that poor choice. I'm going to choose to gratify myself rather than to honor God. Now, grace goes on to train us and to educate us and to coach us and motivate us. In another way, it says that grace instructs us not only to say no to ungodliness and worldly desires, but also it teaches us to live sensibly and righteously and godly. Sensibly, I believe, is an inward idea. And and this is a word, sensibly, that we've seen reappearing on the on the pages of Titus, we saw it in chapter 1, verse 8. We saw it in chapter 2, verse 2, verse 5, verse 6. We've talked about what it means to be sensible. Someone who is sensible has a genuine concern for what God says is important, what God says is a priority. We live sensibly when we have a clear view of the issues of sin and salvation and judgment and eternity. Really what he's saying is that grace teaches us that we should have a biblical outlook in our life. It instructs us to live sensibly and also to live righteously. The first one is more of an inward thing. I think this one is more of an outward thing. Grace teaches that we're to live in an upright way. We're to have right conduct to other people. We're to live rightly when it comes to relating to our spouse. We're to live rightly when it comes to relating to our children. We're to live rightly when it comes to relating to our neighbors and our co-workers. Grace teaches us we're to live rightly when it comes to relating to our parents. It instructs us to say no to ungodliness and worldly desires, to live sensibly, righteously, and then thirdly, it mentions and living godly. I think this is an upward dimension. This means that Grace teaches us that we need to live our life in light of his presence. 
He is always there. The Holy Spirit of God, if we're a follower of his, lives inside of us. We're to live godly. We're to honor him with all of our choices. We're to give him preeminence and first place in everything. Look back at the verse. It's instructing us to say no to ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, inwardly, righteously, outwardly, godly, upwardly in the present age. You know, I don't know if you, if you think of it this way, but, but all the time that you will be alive, you're going to live in the present age. But we're not to live like the present age. And we're not to live for the present age. What do we be living for instead? rather than the present age. Well, that leads us to the third thing we want to look at in grace school, and that is grace and future glory. And we see that in verse 13. Follow along as I read verse 13 again. Looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. Now, I don't know if you caught it or not in these verses, but there are two appearings here. One appearing is in verse 11. A second appearing is in verse 13. The first one is the appearing of grace. And it's a past thing. It deals with the crucifixion. In verse 13, we're dealing with another appearing. This is the appearing of glory. And this is a future thing. And it deals with coronation rather than crucifixion. We have one epiphany that is past. It's the epiphany that's built around crucifixion. We have another epiphany that is future, and it is the glory and the coronation of Jesus Christ. What verse 13 is really communicating to us is that our home is not here. You know, I am residing in a house on Valley Vista, but it's not my home. Whatever your address, wherever you are renting space, wherever you may be buying a house, it's not your home. Our home is not here. And he says, grace teaches us that we are to be looking for the blessed hope and appearance of the glory of our great God and Savior. The idea in this, in this verb, looking for, is the idea of anxious anticipation, I want you to think about someone who may be your closest friend. And let's assume that your closest friend and you have not seen each other for a long time. Maybe a relative that was your favorite relative. You haven't seen each other for a long time. And you get the word that they could be flying into the airport any day. The sense that you would have would be the sense that's described here. One of anxious anticipation. I cannot wait for them to get here. It's the same kind of emotional response that we've seen here locally as many of our soldiers have come back from Iraq and Afghanistan and you have their family in this anxious anticipation. I can't wait for it to happen. Looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. You may not know this, but in verse 13 there, 
This is one of the greatest statements in all of the New Testament that affirms the full deity of Jesus when it talks about the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. Some people might look at this and think, well, our great God, that's talking about the Father, or the Savior, that's talking about Christ Jesus. But no, it's one and the same. There is a rule in the original language called the Granville Sharp Rule. I won't give you all the details of it, but what it says this is something like this. When you have two singular nouns, they're in the same case, and they have one article governing both of them, they are saying that it's talking about the same person. So when it talks about here, our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, it's affirming his deity. It's saying that the mighty God himself is coming back again. And I want you to keep your finger here, and I want you to turn in the New Testament to the very last book of the New Testament and one of the last couple of chapters, Revelation chapter 19. I've shared over the years that to me this is one of the most moving sections in all of the Bible, Revelation chapter 19 verses 11 to 16, and anytime I have an excuse to go there, um, I do, and I had an excuse to go there today. But I want you to notice what it says in Revelation 19, verse 11. This is just awe-inspiring to me. It says, I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. And he is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron." And he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. We learn from Philippians chapter 2 that in the future, a day is coming in which every knee is going to bow and every single tongue is going to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And grace teaches us that we need to be looking for that great event. Grace has a great lesson plan for us. I like the words of John Benton. He wrote this. He says, many times in the Old Testament, God had saved his people. But those rescues are only scale models of the true salvation that has come in Christ. He rescued Abraham and Sarah from their barrenness and reproductive deadness. But in Christ, he has rescued us from death itself. He rescued the Israelites from slavery to Pharaoh in Egypt, but in Christ he has rescued us from sin and brought us 
from the power of Satan to God. He brought Israel to a new land flowing with milk and honey, but in Christ he's bringing us to an eternal world, a new heavens and a new earth, the home of righteousness. The salvation which the Old Testament stories can only picture for us has become a wonderful reality in the incarnation, death, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And you just have to step back from that and go, wow, wow. What amazing grace. This is life-altering instruction from God. Grace school is a school that should transform our outlook. It should transform our life. Amazing stuff. What a place to be in grace school. Now, as we get ready to draw everything to a close today, I want to share some questions for reflection. And the first question is for those of us who are followers of Jesus. And here's the question. Do my life choices consistently reflect gratitude for his grace? Now, you notice I did not say, do my life choices perfectly reflect gratitude for his grace? Because that will never be true. Because we're going to fall short. But do my life choices consistently reflect gratitude for his grace? Am I living rightly when it comes to relating to my spouse? Am I living rightly when it comes to relating to my children? Am I living rightly when it comes to relating to my parents? Do my life choices consistently reflect gratitude for his grace? Am I sold out to honoring him as I live my life? Now, the second question from reflection I have is for those who are not yet followers of Jesus. And my question is, what is holding you back? As I said, a majority of the world is going to choose to decline his grace. But the neat thing is that each person has to make their own individual life decision about What's holding you back? If it's, well, you know, somehow I, I can try to get enough goodness going in my life that God will just accept me the way I am. No, 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 we can never be good enough. I can never be good enough. You can never be good enough. So why waste your time trying to measure up? Christ is the one who did it all. And if you're not yet a follower of Jesus, I just want to remind you that Jesus Christ had you on his mind from before you were born. He desired to make you part of his family, to be part of his special treasure. 
In the Gospel of John, in chapter 3, verse 36, the first part of the verse says this, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. What does it really mean to believe in the Son? The word believe means to put your weight on something, to trust in something, to rely on something. When it talks about believing in the Son, it means believing who He is, that He is the Creator God who came down to this planet with the purpose in mind that He was going to give your life, His life for your life. Believing in the Son means we believe in who He is and we believe in what He has done for us. He who believes and rests in and trusts in who he is and what he's accomplished has eternal life right now. But verse 36 goes on to say, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life. The majority of the world is just going to decline his grace. And when we do that, it says that God's wrath remains on him. What's holding you back? You'll never regret it. Trust me on that. Let's pray together. Father, we, we just thank you again for this living book. Sometimes in my, my hands could almost feel pulsating with truth about life. And Father, for those who've never yet chosen to be followers of Jesus, I would pray that, that they would do that. They would just, right where they're seated right now, would just in their hearts say, I want to trust and rest in who Christ is and what he's done. I want to become part of his family. I want to be forgiven. I want to be part of the special treasure of God. They can do that right now, right where they are. And for those of us who are your followers, may we just remember that our life is to honor you for all that you are and all that you have done. And Father, we... We just give you praise for your incredible, unfailing love for us. Thank you. And we pray in Jesus' name.